Ukraine Iraqi forces. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Renita Malhotra Hora. U.S. stocks reach record highs amid corporate results optimism. The long-awaited Hong Kong-Shanghai stock connection boosts Chinese shares and the ruble is up 2% after central banks scrap formal intervention. The Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect looks like it's finally set to launch. And today on Money for Nothing, we'll ask Francis Lun of GEO Securities about what Shanghai stocks we should be keeping an eye on as we open up to this new phase of regional investing opportunities. We'll also look at smart city investments in Asia with Gerald Wang of IDC Asia and co-investments in the Asian region with Marcus Thompson of Headland Capital. My guest host for this morning is Enzio von File. Good morning, Enzio. Morning. Welcome to guest hosting at Money for Thank Nothing. Thank you. Thank you. The greatest morning show. <laughs> <laughs> but first, to look at today's top stories. Uh, so, news about the launch of the Stock Connect program lifted world markets. Uh, the Wa- Wall Street soared to fresh records. Chinese shares jumped 2.5%, and Hong Kong's Hang Seng Index climbed almost 1% overnight. Altus Wong reports. This is official November 17th, after weeks of speculation over when the pilot trading program will come on board. It had been widely rumoured that the launch of the direct trading link, anticipated in late last month, had been pushed back because of the Occupy movement. The link will allow retail investors to buy into the Shanghai-listed blue chips that form a part of the pilot program in sectors such as healthcare, industrial materials and consumer staples that aren't easily accessible at present. However, there is a trading cap on how much investors are allowed to buy and sell collectively in each other's market. The scheme limits investment into Shanghai by 13 billion yuan a day on net inflows and investment into Hong Kong is capped at 10.5 billion yuan a day. The quotas are designed to protect the mainland's tightly controlled capital market from possible shockwaves in global financial markets. The scheme is also a key step in Beijing's plan to reform the country's capital market and financial system. Investment bank Goldman Sachs has described the trading link as too big to ignore, as it added 568 companies to investors' universe of available stocks worldwide. Meanwhile, UBS estimates that the link opens up an additional US$2 trillion of investment options. The pilot scheme was initially announced by Premier Li Keqiang in April. Since then, the Hang Seng Index has risen about 8% and the Shanghai Composite Index has gained 18%. 18%. Mark Conan, CEO of Cafe Conning, said that the trading link is definitely good news for investors. It's a different uh, set of circumstances, of course. Um, they'll need to be um, cognizant of um, the details of the companies they're investing in. Um, and I think that's good news for brokers. And you've seen that ahead of this announcement, uh, broking firms were um, uh, outperforming the market. And that's, uh, that's significant and indicative of the types of services that people will be looking for. Um, of course, there's the, uh, the currency angle as well. They'll be exposed to RMB, but for certainly local investors here in Hong Kong, uh, that's not necessarily seen as a negative. As we know, local investors have building, been building up their RMB uh, exposure through the banking system for quite some time. 
But after local and mainland markets rallied yesterday, the Hang Seng Index lost some of its gains made during the day. The executive director of research at Kingston Financial Group, Dickie Wong, said that he expects the Hang Seng to meet with some resistance in the days to come. This is a news, uh, actually, something that we have been expecting for so long. So it will give a boost to the local stock market, but not a very big boost. And I don't think um, the Hong Kong stock market uh, will benefit um, from this uh, news um, in the next um, couple of weeks because they sharply open higher of the Hang Seng Index and also those stocks like Hong Kong Stock Exchange and um, brokerage firm, etc. It's basically a f- fully reflected at this um, level. So I would expect that the Hang Seng Index will still find some kind of resistance at 24,100 in um, the next day or two. U.S. stock markets soared to fresh records with the Dow Jones Industrial hitting a closing high for the third straight session. The Dow finished a 0.2% higher at 17,613. The S&P rose 3% to end at 2,038. And the Nasdaq gained 0.4 of a percent to 4,651. But then there was U.S. President Barack Obama's warning against allowing large internet service providers to discriminate between customers on the inter- be- between customers on internet access and speeds. He asked the FCC for the strongest possible rules to protect internet neutrality. The FCC is an independent agency, and ultimately, this decision is theirs alone. But the public has already commented nearly four million times, asking the FCC to make sure that consumers, not the cable company, gets to decide which sites they use. Americans are making their voices heard and standing up for the principles that make the Internet a powerful force for change. As long as I'm president, that's what I'll be fighting for, too. President Obama's warning hurt Internet broadband carriers. Comcast fell 4%, Time Warner fell 4.9%, Verizon Wireless fell 0.3%. Well, let's bring in uh, our guest, Francis Lun, who is the CEO of GEO Securities. Uh, Francis, uh, lots of great news about yes. the Hong Kong-Shanghai Stock Connect. I think we're all very excited about this. Definitely. We Fine. are waking up from our doldrums. Yes, we are waking <laughs> up from our doldrums indeed. So... Uh, I have to start by asking you, what market do you think is more attractive to investors in general, Hong Kong or Shanghai? Well, I think uh, for overseas investors, Asia has really holds some attraction because uh, uh, for institutions, uh, uh, they will want to invest in the big companies in China, like all the major banks and insurance companies. And they, all these A shares are trading at about 10% discount to H shares. So uh, I, I believe that uh, in the initial stages, there will be an influx of money buying up all these financial uh, institutions like uh, Bank of China, ICBC, China Life, etc., and they will benefit from it. And of course, Asia really need need the boost because it has been in the doldrums for the last five years, and the the market has not risen for the last five years. And and uh, and, and really need a shock from uh, overseas money. And that's and that's actually part of the reason why they open up this Shanghai Hong Kong Connect. Indeed, I mean I think what's particularly exciting is that it raises a slew of up, you know investment opportunities yeah. you know that we haven't had before. Now, for investors in Hong Kong, um, 
what Shanghai stocks would you say we should be looking at, you know, that we haven't had access to necessarily before? Well, actually, if you look beyond the uh, uh, the blue chips, like the major financials and telecom companies, and Asia is, re- is really a haven for speculators. But all uh, most of these speculatively st- relative stocks are off the market for Hong Kong investors so they're really not that attractive mm. <laughs> so so we are being bombarded almost weekly by uh, scandals emanating from the uh, uh, from 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 the uh, Asia market. Last week, we had the one seafood company with uh, 1 billion yuan of uh, uh, shellfish disappearing overnight. So so, so I think uh, most people will, will really hesitate to invest in the small cap stocks in China. Enzio, do you agree? <laughs> well, I, th- I think that there have been the odd scandals about. I was just wondering about another facet, though, Francis, which is the tax angle. If people yeah. buy mm-hmm. A shares, are they going to get hurt tax-wise, or how is that going to pan well, out? Well, uh, uh, according to the uh, market rumors, it, uh, the uh, Chinese authorities are are going to hold off on any capital gains tax for the moment. Well, maybe there won't be any capital gains. I think that's what you just said. (laughs) So they're tax efficient, right? Yeah. (laughs) All right. You know, the fact that uh, Shanghai investors uh, also now have an opportunity to rush uh, to buy Hong Kong stocks um, leads one to think that surely we're going to see some price rise, you know, among stocks here in Hong Kong. Yeah, definitely. Especially, well, of course, initially it it will be the the heavyweights like uh, Tencent, HSBC, and uh, China Mobile, etc. But then, uh, actually, Chinese investors are well are much more speculative than Hong Kong investors, according to the studies, because they turn over the stock something like uh, uh, three and a half times a year, and Hong Kong investors only turn over stock their stocks uh, twice a year. So, so you you have many gamblers ready to pounce on the Hong Kong stock yeah, market. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why why do you think this is this penchant for gambling? Is this because they're, they're not allowed to go to Macau it, it's these still days? In, uh, in the national psyche. <laughs> okay, can't go to Macau. We'll we'll go to the Stock Connect, right to the through train. Yeah. Okay, so um, Francis, does that mean that you know we here also should uh, perhaps be buying you know stocks like HSBC, Tencent, China Mobile today now? <laughs> Well, before Monday, yeah, I, I think so. Well, actually, uh, I will buy Hong Kong exchanges. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> and this is the stock that most directly benefit from the uh, uh, Hong Kong uh, Shanghai Connect. All but right. Francis, how many just how many new investors will really come in? Do you think? Because I mean, there's already quite a bit of punting money in Hong Kong yeah, through well, the various ways of doing these things. To put it nicely, well, uh, China has 100 million uh, uh, investors. Hong Kong has maybe uh, two million at most. So, so that that is a huge, even if that. As one percent of the people coming to invest in Hong Kong, that's already one million people. Mm. So they will swarm Hong Kong. <laughs> okay, thank you so much for joining us this You're morning. Welcome. That is Francis Lun. He is the CEO of GEO Securities. Well, China has unveiled a series of economic measures aimed at tying the region more firmly to itself. Now, these include. Uh, 
wide-ranging trade agreement with South Korea. And, of course, the central banks move to push up the value of the renminbi, making goods from other Asian nations more competitive in the Chinese market. Australian officials have announced that they're on the verge of their own trade agreement with Beijing and could finish a deal in the next few days. Now, all of this comes right after President Xi Jinping announced a $40 billion Silk Road fund to invest in infrastructure and natural resources development in China's neighbors, many of whom are watching cautiously uh, the rise of this new sort of economic muscle. And although these measures could potentially weaken Asia's ties to the United States, President Obama stressed that America wanted China to do well. We welcome the rise of a prosperous, peaceful and stable China. In fact, over recent decades, the United States has worked to help integrate China into the global economy. Not only because it's in China's best interest, but because it's in America's best interest and the world's best interests. And an ice-breaking summit between President Xi Jinping and Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe took place yesterday. The first formal talks to have taken place since the two leaders took office. China analyst Mark O'Neill told RTHK that in the first nine months of 2014, Japanese investment in China had dropped by 40%. The figures suggest it's not business as usual underneath Um In the first nine months of this year, Japanese investment in China fell by 40%, which is a very significant amount when you consider how important the Chinese market is to Japanese companies. So this means that Japanese companies have been fearful that if they invest in China, their factories, their shops, their restaurants are going to be vulnerable to this anti-Chinese rhetoric, possible demonstrations, strikes, attacks on these facilities in the future and therefore they have diversified their risk and made investments in other countries in Southeast Asia. So, no, it isn't business as as usual. The Nikkei is up half a percent to 16,867. Australia's ASX index is down a quarter of a percent to 5,487 and Seoul's Kospi is flat at 1,958. The time is now 8.17 a.m. and smart city investments in the Asia-Pacific region will reach U.S. dollars 1 trillion, 1 trillion U.S. dollars by 2025. But what exactly does that entail? So let's talk to Gerald Wong, who is a Singapore-based analyst at IDC Asia. Good morning, Gerald. Hi, good morning, Winita. So, Gerald, can you explain to us, firstly, what is a smart city? You know, what does this actually mean, and who is involved in the creation of a smart city? Okay, sure. Um, so, essentially, according to IDC, a smart city, we define it pretty loosely as a finite entity, uh, typically with its more, um, own governing authority that is more local government rather than a national level, and that this authority typically uses a specific set of technologies to achieve certain social economic goals, especially to improve like citizen lives and sustainable urban development. Now, there are two areas in terms of how we see this local authority uh, work. So um, the first one is more on jurisdictional side of things, where things like districts, towns, cities, counties, you know, country, metropolitan areas, city-states like Singapore, Morocco, or the Vatican or even um, special administrative regions in Hong Kong. 
So um, that's the jurisdictional side of it. And the other side of it would be more on the functional side of things, where we see, you know, public order and safety clusters, transport clusters, waste and water, water management clusters or utilities clusters, types of local government authorities who are putting in place cutting-edge and innovative technologies to really improve the running of their everyday uh, the everyday operations of cities. So, Gerald, right. would you say that the stakeholders are all in the public sector? Yes, um, there, there is the public sector stakeholders, and there are also some levels of contribution from the private sector. Can you give us an um, example? IBM, for example, has been you know going ahead with quite a few of uh, the smarter cities challenge. They have been you know. Um, giving seed funding to many governments across the Asia-Pacific region to really build, um, you know, uh, all these smart city technologies and concepts. And, and the focuses are very different across different countries. Like in the Philippines, it could be about urban planning or even disaster recovery management. Um, in India, it could be about social services, transportation, um, in more mature economies like Singapore, Korea, we do see transportation as a very big issue that you know they're trying to, to look into. In China and um, developing nations, we do see economic uh, development as a very big area. Can, can you can you specify um, you know what that means? So when you say economic development, specifically, what can we see in these smart cities? Right. So um, essentially, a smart city. Um, before the investment of the technologies, like technology at the end of the day is still an enabler. You need to see what is the geopolitical and social economic side of things. Is it a trade center first, right? You don't want to create gold cities at the end of the day. You want to create something where it's a confluence of people, talent, and you know manpower and resources, uh, foreign direct investment, everything come into play and at the right time and the right place. And, and this is very critical because, I mean, Looking in terms of some statistics that we see from the UN, um, currently there are about 50% of global population that live in the city today, of the 7 billion people uh, population globally. And by 2025, we believe that 70% of um, citizens of the 9 billion will live in cities. So what does this entail? This essentially entails that there's a lot of straining in terms of uh, the, 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 the resources and infrastructure. Gerald, let me just interrupt you there. On a, sure. Within that score, um, what about the educational investments going on? It seems to me as if a lot of this income divide that Piketty was referring to and what many people indeed even in Hong Kong are concerned about has to do, in my mind at least, with you know education which just hasn't caught up. And I'm just curious to know how much of this investing is really going into, say, vocational training and into educational efforts within, you know, for lack of a better word, right. within the region for us out here. Right, right. Um, definitely we do see more uh, focuses on education and healthcare side of things. Um, education, <coughs> sorry, uh, we, we do see some... Um, Investment, especially from the emerging economies, really trying to, you know, build out specialized vocational trainings and all that. I mean, the landscape is changing. Um, there is even the education landscape is affected by a lot of transformative new uh, causes, things like your massive online open courses that that everyone you know can really you know 
un, you know, have this in this. Um, I think one of the main areas in terms of industry, uh, of, of education sector is that you may train the right person with the right certification, but they may not be industry ready. All right. Unfortunately, so, um, uh, Gerald, yeah. we're out of time, so we need to stop it sure. there. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Gerald Wong, who is an analyst with IDC Asia based in Singapore. The time is now 8.23 a.m. and we'll be back to talk more about co-investment in the Asia-Pacific region. That is right after this message. How are policies formulated? How should the government allocate its resources in the budget? Boost the economy. Meet housing needs. Care for the elderly. Or should we focus on education, health care, and the environment? Make your voice heard. Share your views on the Policy Address and Budget Consultation website at www.policyaddress.gov.hk or call our hotline 2810-3768. Co-investment is definitely a buzzword in Asia these days. And as the investment climate becomes more sophisticated, more and more people consider a co-investment deal to be attractive and more transparent. However, the jury is still out on whether these deals actually increase returns or whether they strengthen relationships and reduce costs. So let's bring in Marcus Thompson, who is the CEO of Headland Capital, to bring us up to date on co-investment deals in Asia. Good morning, Marcus. Good morning, Renita. So, Marcus, uh, tell us first exactly what is meant by co-investment. A co-investment is a situation where a private equity fund invests into a target company alongside one of the investors in that fund. So they both invest in the same target company at the same time. And the expectation is they will work together and ultimately exit the investment at more or less the same time. And why does this make sense? This makes sense for the private equity manager because it enables the, the manager to make larger investments. So, for example, if, if you're managing a fund which has $1 billion of committed capital and you're put, looking to build up a portfolio of around 10 investments, so an average of $100 million uh, equity check, then if you come across a transaction that requires a larger equity requirement, let's say $200 million, it enables uh, the fund to make a $100 million investment and offer $100 million of co-investment to the fund's uh, investors. So you get a larger capital flow, but obviously as a participant, a smaller share of the pie. But that's not necessarily a bad thing, you say? Yes. From I mean, typically, you're, as a private equity manager, you're building up a portfolio and you don't want to take too concentrated a risk in, in any one uh, investment. Go ahead, Enzio. I think yeah, you've uh, got some thoughts. Yeah, just on word, Marcus, with risks, can you give us a simple overview of what types of risks one is looking at? Sure, Enzio. The, when you're investing in private equity, clearly uh, there are, we, we look at the particular company in which we're investing and do a 360 review to understand its uh, strengths and weaknesses before we make the investment. So we, we, as we go into the investment, we, we understand, have a warts and all understanding of what that business is, 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 is like. And during the holding period, we try to improve the operations of the business over, let's say, a three- to five-year period, grow the business, take it to the next level, and ultimately that level uh, stage, we're looking to exit either by way of a sale to a third party or possibly an IPO on the public markets. But what about the risk of your co-investor? Do you, do you have presumably systems in place to also check out that the people you're partnering with on the investment side are also legit? 
Yes, the typically we work with existing investors in our funds or otherwise investors who we know very well. It's uh, there are obviously risks within any transaction, private equity transaction. The returns on each deal will vary, um, but there are incremental risks if a disagreement were to build up between the private equity manager and uh, one of the investors. So it's very important that the both parties know each other well and have a common view as to what the objectives are for the investment and ultimately the exit as well. So, Marcus, this extra level of due diligence, if you will, that you now need to do on the co-investor, uh, as Enzio suggests, uh, rather than simply the company that is being invested in, mm. does this minimize efficiency? Typically, the investors we work with are people we've known for a long period of time in any event. I mean, they typically will yes. be investors in our fund who would have been with us for many years. Uh, if they're investors who are not in our fund, again, they'll be uh, people who we would have had contact with over multiple years. So we're, we're not looking to bring in outsiders. It, it's very much uh, people who we have a working relationship with. Okay, so you certainly outlined the case for these deals, you know, when it comes to uh, putting more capital in. But, you know, my question is, do they actually increase returns? It, it's hard to say. There are studies out there which suggest otherwise. Uh, from where I sit, I think, uh, I mean, every single deal is going to have its uh, return. And in a portfolio of, let's say, 15 investments in a private equity fund, some will do better than others. And uh, typically only a few of those would actually have co-investments in. So that is, there will be occasions when a private uh, co-investor will do better and there will be do situations where a co-investor will do not so well. Okay. But I think it's more random. Enzio, last question before we wrap up. Tax, our favorite subject again as an economist. <laughs> um, presumably there's no short and sweet answer, but you have to – that probably takes an awful lot of resources just to figure out the tax-efficient angles that you're working at, both for your co-investors as well as regarding the investment that you're going into. Yes. Uh, typically, private equity funds are structured as uh, flow-through entities for mm -hmm. tax purposes. So it's as if the ultimate investor were investing directly into the target company. So the tax uh, situation will vary depending on which jurisdiction the investor is resident in and the, where the target company is uh, headquartered, where it's located. So there are certain jurisdictions where capital gains is not payable, for example, uh, Singapore or uh, other jurisdictions such as China, where there could be situations where capital gains tax could be payable. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Marcus Thompson, and he's the Chief Executive Officer of Headland Capital Partners Limited. And thank you to Enzio von Feil, who is the Investment Strategist at Private Capital Limited. Thank you for your contributions as guest host this morning. A quick look at the numbers before we depart. Uh, the Nikkei is so up do you deal with seven tenth of a percent uh, to 16,910. Uh, Australia's ASX index is down uh, almost one percent, uh, sorry, one tenth of a percent to 5,491. And Sol's Kospi is up just a tad to 1,958. Brent crude oil is currently valued at $82.34. And gold is at $1,154.34 per ounce. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be mainly cloudy with one or two rain patches in the morning. Visibility will be relatively low in some areas. The relative humidity right now is 83% and currently the temperature is 23 degrees Celsius. This is Renita Malhotra-Hora wrapping up Money for Nothing. And now it's time for the half-hour news summary with Todd Harding. 
Nigerian police say a suicide bomber disguised as a student has attacked a secondary school in the northeastern town of Potiskum. Police said at least 47 people have been killed and 79 injured, most of them teenagers. The BBC's Will Ross reports from Lagos. There have been many, many attacks on schools, some with appalling levels of violence meted out on the student population, boys having their throats slit in their dormitories at night, their dormitories burnt down. Nigeria's got one of the worst records when it comes to the number of students that are out of school already, some 10 million of them, and the vast majority of them in the north. So this is going to make the situation a lot worse, and of course it's exactly what the jihadists want. An Israeli soldier and a young woman have been killed in two separate knife attacks in Tel Aviv and the occupied West Bank. Police say the suspects in both cases were Palestinians. The BBC's Kevin Connolly reports. In recent weeks, there have been a number of attacks on men, women and children in busy public spaces in Israel and the West Bank. The latest attacks both involved the use of knives. In Tel Aviv, a young soldier in uniform was stabbed at a busy railway station. He died later in hospital. It's reported that the attacker, who's now in custody, was a Palestinian man from the West Bank city of Nablus. In the second incident, a young woman...